Uh, did you know it's only been legal for women to drive in Saudi Arabia for the last year or so? But it's not just driving. There are still many strict legal guardianship rules about women making even basic decisions in society. Uh, for most things, they need written permission from a male family member. We hear stories like that and we think we must be doing all right in Australia when it comes to uh, our treatment of women. But I think that would be a mistake. Uh, just look at the underrepresentation of women in top executive roles or on company boards. Uh, or talk to Leah Russell sometime about the difficulty of professional women being paid the same amount as equally qualified men for the same work. Now, there may be some improvements in some areas of equality for women, but in other areas of Australian society, we're getting far worse, uh, like the objectification of women, devaluing, dehumanising them, treating them as objects rather than people. Uh, the images are everywhere, aren't they? Advertising, magazines, the internet, music videos, TV, movies. Uh, in another example of research telling you exactly what you already know, recent research from Victoria showed that the sexual, sex, sexualisation and objectification of women in advertising is increasing. Uh, and that it negatively impacts women's health and well-being. Another study by psychologists from Melbourne and Sydney University showed that men are more likely to become aggressive towards women who reject them if the women have been sexually objectified, if they've seen pictures of them in wearing certain clothes. And there's another area of Australian society where we need to hang our head in shame the widespread occurrence of sexual violence. It may just be cat calls and wolf whistles. It might be unwanted propositions. It might be physical attack. It might be domestic violence. Uh, the Australian Bureau of Statistics reports from the 2017 census that one in five Australian women have experienced sexual violence and or threats. Uh, one in four women have experienced emotional abuse from a current or former partner. Uh, in the UK, a Guardian newspaper poll in 2016 reported that 52% of women in Britain had experienced unwanted attention in the workplace. Uh, a UK Telegraph poll in 2015 reported that 34% of university student women had experienced sexual assault or assault. Uh, and then there's the effect all of this has on children uh, as witnesses or victims of domestic or sexual violence or the way girls grow up and self-objectify. In other words, teenage girls see themselves as an object uh, that leads to all sorts of body image issues, appearance anxiety, sexual promiscuity, eating disorders. Uh, but what about our current issue, the big one at the moment, abortion? Uh, I did a bit of Googling. I wondered how many abortions there were in Australia and I came up with the website Children by Choice, uh, which by the name of it is a pro-choice website 
uh, and it quotes these statistics. Half of all pregnancies in Australia are unplanned and half of those are terminated. Between one quarter and one third of Australian women will abort a baby in their lifetime. Uh, and this is the statistic that I found when I was searching. Uh, they did a, a study to try and work out how many abortions there were in Australia and they found uh, they couldn't really work it out, uh, but that in Queensland alone it's generally accepted somewhere between 10,000 and 14,000 abortions every year. Now, as Christians, that stuff should make us weep. As a society, it should shame us. Now, you may think that's an interesting introduction to a series called Legacy, How Jesus Has Changed the World, especially when the topic is women and children. You may wonder, with figures like that, precisely whether Jesus has made any difference in our society with regards to treatment of women and children. You may, quite rightly, argue that the church hasn't done enough in speaking up or working against inequality and mistreatment and abuse. In fact, you could quite rightly point out that members of the church have been perpetrators of this sort of behaviour. Yes, there's stuff we need to repent of. There's stuff we need to do better in the future. But what I want to do today is to focus on Jesus. Look at his treatment of women and children and highlight how countercultural he was in his day as well as in our day. And then for a few moments imagine what it might look like if we were serious about treating women and children the way that Jesus did. That's the plan. Thinking about Jesus' time, uh, various rabbinic sources describe a society where women couldn't testify in public, uh, sorry, couldn't testify in court. Uh, where most women were illiterate, since it was only men who could study the scriptures, uh, where women were confined to the women's court in the temple, even though there was no such thing described when Solomon's temple was built. A society where, in general, women were uh, excluded from public life and from operating in business. Uh, a contemporary writer, Ben Sirach, describes the cultural attitude towards working women when he says bad temper, insolence and shame hold sway when the wife supports the husband. Uh, one passage from the Talmud sums up the situation of women around the time of Christ. They're swathed like a mourner, isolated from people and shut up in prison. There's a few places in the Gospels where we see the disciples reflecting something of that attitude. Uh, for example, Matthew 15:22, a Canaanite mother cries out to Jesus uh, to heal her demon-possessed daughter. Jesus doesn't answer. She keeps crying out. The disciples get a bit tired of the noise. They come to Jesus and encourage him, send her away. She keeps crying out after us. They want to dismiss her, but instead Jesus receives her, values her faith, heals her daughter. Uh, or John chapter 4, 
Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. We know that story well. The disciples come back from town with lunch and verse 27 we read, they're surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Why are you talking with me? But it was this woman, Jesus revealed some of his clearest teaching about his identity. That he was the Messiah, that he'd, he offered people eternal life. What about the disciples' attitude to children? Uh, Mark 10, 13, uh, we read, people were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked the parents. Uh, For the disciples, for Jewish society in general, women and children were insignificant, non-contributing, therefore not valuable. We haven't got time to look at the contemporary Roman society or the Greek society that came before that, uh, that was, they were far worse. But it's into that situation Jesus comes with a completely countercultural attitude to women and children. Uh, it was an attitude based on um, Genesis 1, verse 27, where God created humanity in his image, male and female. Uh, God created everybody with value and worth and dignity whether you were male or female, whether you were young or old, whether you were powerful or helpless. Uh, In Mark chapter 5, there's an unclean woman suffering chronic bleeding. Uh, She's isolated, she is shunned. But she sneaks up to Jesus in a crowd thinking no one will notice and she touches him. And instead of rebuking her and worrying about him becoming unclean, he heals her, he blesses her, He restores her. Uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 38, Jesus visits the home of Mary and Martha. Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet, listening, learning. Martha complains about her not helping in the kitchen and Jesus insists that Mary has chosen what's better. Now we read that and think, all right, having a chat is more important than preparing the food, but... It's extraordinary, it's countercultural because to be a rabbi's student was strictly for men. And yet Jesus is welcoming her and teaching her along with the other men and who knows who else. But it's not just Mary. Uh, Luke chapter 8 describes various women among Jesus' disciples as he travelled around. They'd been healed of diseases and of evil spirits and then they followed him. And they're learning from him. And they're even helping support him financially, uh, which would have been shameful in that, in that culture for Jesus. Uh, the women keep following. Apart from the Apostle John, it's only women who are named at the foot of the cross. It's women who hear the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. It's women who pass on what they heard so we can read about it. It's women who come to the tomb. It's women who are the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. It's Mary, Jesus appears to in the garden. It's women who go and testify to what they've seen, to the apostles. Now all of that just reflects how Jesus welcomed them into the people who were following him. He accepted them. Reflects something too of how committed to him they were. 
Let's think about Jesus' teaching. When it comes to his teaching, women are the subject of various parables. Uh, There's the woman searching for the lost coin. Uh, There's the persistent widow and the unjust judge in Luke 18. There's the ten virgins waiting for the bridegroom in Matthew 25. Uh, There's the woman who's mixing yeast into the dough in Matthew 13. Uh, If we think about his teaching on divorce and adultery, at a time when husbands could divorce their wives quickly and easily, where wives had no such right, had no rights at all really, and no means of financial support when divorced, uh, Matthew 19, he taught that a man who divorced his wife and remarried, other than for grounds of adultery, was actually committing adultery himself. He was strengthening the boundaries, the protections around marriage, and he was doing it for the sake of women who were powerless. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, as he teaches about adultery, rather than objecting women and blaming them for leading men astray, he places the responsibility squarely on the man, on the man's self-control. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's the heart that's the problem. It's not what the woman happens to be wearing or the fact she's in a certain place at a certain time. The heart is the problem. Uh, One last passage to do with women, the passage that Neil read for us earlier, Luke 7.36. It's up there on the screen, but if you want to follow along in your Bibles, that would be great too. Uh, Jesus is having dinner with Simon the Pharisee. Uh, A woman uh, who'd lived a sinful life hears that Jesus is in the house. She drops in unannounced. She's brought a gift of expensive perfume. Uh, Most respectable uh, rabbis would have sent her away. But look at verse 38. She stood behind him at his feet weeping and she began to wet his feet with her tears. It reads to me like she hadn't planned any of what comes next. Maybe she'd just been listening as Jesus talked and taught, but then the tears start. Probably firstly from guilt as she recognises her own sin, but then as she understands the forgiveness Jesus offers, they become not tears of guilt but tears of gratitude and joy. She looks down, she notices she's making a mess on Jesus' unwashed, dusty feet. She looks around for a towel, she can't find one. The only thing she's got is her hair. She wipes his feet with her hair, then kisses them and pours perfume on them. It's a physically intimate, awkward action, isn't it? Especially given her reputation. I know if I'd been in Jesus' position, I'd have felt embarrassed. It certainly seems to have made Simon uncomfortable. (laughs) Verse 39, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he'd know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. And yet rather than rebuke the woman and and shoo her out the door, rather than focus on her reputation, Jesus focuses on her repentance and her love. He defends her and he tells Simon a story. Verse 41, two men owe money. One owes 500, the other only 50. Neither can pay. So the moneylender forgives both. 
And Jesus finishes by asking Simon a question, which of them will love him more? Well, the answer is obvious. The one who's been forgiven the most will love the most. Uh, You're right, says Jesus. And then in verse 44, he connects Simon and the woman to the two debtors in the story. Simon feels like he has little that needs forgiving, and so he loves little. Jesus points out that he, he didn't wash Jesus' feet when he came in, didn't kiss him, didn't anoint his head with oil. And yet the woman whose sins have been forgiven loves much. And Jesus welcomes and forgives and blesses her. Her faith, her repentance, her love are rewarded. It's not her reputation, it's not her past sins which are the issue. I want to read you a quote by, uh, from Dorothy Sayers. Uh, she was one of the first female graduates of Oxford in 1915, 1915. She battled hard for equality for women She studied at a time when women could study but were not awarded degrees when they finished. She received her degree a few years after she studied. She went on to become a well-known novelist and poet. In a letter to the Bishop of Coventry, she described Jesus' attitude to women in this way. Alone among teachers and founders of religion, he did and said nothing special about them. He never said they were tempters or snares or weaklings or imbeciles or inspirations or angels. He never mapped out a special sphere of duties for them or told people to keep clear of them or shut them up. When they asked him intelligent questions, he replied seriously and intelligibly. And when Mary wanted to hike, uh, when Martha wanted to hike Mary off on the ground that women's woman's place was in the kitchen, he told her to leave her alone. He never patronised or condescended or scolded or nagged at women for being women or turned shy or silly or self-conscious or superior on them. And not one teaching or parable of his ever turns on funny stuff about wives or horrid warnings about women. You could read the whole gospel from end to end without learning from it that there was anything peculiar about women or that mankind was divided into two sections. You don't realise, perhaps, how extraordinary that is, she writes. It's unparalleled. There's been nothing like it before or since. And here's a last little sentence to the Bishop of Coventry. There's certainly never been anything like it in Christ's church. And then there's Jesus' attitude to children. Overlooked, insignificant, unimportant, but for Jesus, children matter. Because God is always the defender of the weak. God is the protector of the powerless. We saw it in Psalm 146 this morning. He's the creator who cares for the smallest of his creatures. Mark 10, people are bringing their children to Jesus to have him bless them. The disciples decide Jesus has more important things to be doing. Children don't count, they don't contribute, they rebuke the parents. But Jesus' reaction, verse 14, he was indignant. It's 
quite a strong word. I'm pretty sure it's the same word Jesus uses when he cleanses the temple. He said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Powerless, trusting, humble children are the perfect type of disciple. They're model disciples. Verse 15, he says, I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them and blessed them. He welcomes, he rejoices in them, but he also defends them. Uh, the previous chapter, Mark chapter 9, is about the disciples arguing about who's the greatest. And so as an object lesson, Jesus brings in a child and, and puts the child in the midst, in their midst, and he encourages them to welcome little children. And Jesus says, if you welcome little children, you're just about doing the most important thing you can do. When you welcome a little child, that's like welcoming Jesus himself. It, it's like welcoming the one who sent Jesus. And then a few verses on in verse 42, he says, And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck. Don't you dare cause one of these little ones to stumble, says Jesus. He defends, he values them. And down through history, it's often been the Christian church which has done that. It's been Christians who take the lead, who've pushed the boundaries, Christians who've educated kids and run the orphanages and the adoption agencies and the child sponsorship organisations. You may not know, the reason New South Wales has school scripture classes locked into the State Education Act is because it used to be the church that ran all the schools. They did all the educating when the government didn't have the capacity to do it. And when the government eventually got round to being able to run schools, the church has said, OK, we'll let you do it as long as we get to come in and educate them about what really matters. And that's why it's in the Education Act and why it's been so difficult to remove in New South Wales. Now, our record's not perfect. There's been times in the history of Christian institutions where we haven't protected and loved kids the way we should. There are things we need to repent of and we need to keep working to make sure that we do better and we're committing time and resources and people to do it. Everyone in our church who has anything to do with leadership or working with kids commits time and energy each year uh, to make sure we're trained and accredited. We need to keep working. We need to love and care for people the way Jesus did. Jesus searched out the least and the lost and the last, including women and children. He defended and cared for them and protected them. Where are those people for us? The least and the lost and the last. Where are they in Ashfield? Where are the vulnerable ones? We need to stand up for the rights of the unborn. We also need to be in real, practical, messy, sacrificial ways loving pregnant mums. 
mums who are struggling, supporting, enabling, equipping them so that they've actually got a real choice to make when it comes to whether they keep or abort a baby. Jesus calls us to love unborn babies and to love mums. Have you ever thought about fostering a child? There are some remarkable stories about churches where significant numbers of people foster needy kids. What about trafficking and slavery? Some of you know about Corrine Wolfhouse who helps run an SIM organisation called For Freedom, helping churches work out what they can do to prevent slavery and trafficking from happening in the first place. She would say, don't assume it only happens in third world countries. It's almost certainly happening here in Ashfield. In our massage parlours and brothels and perhaps even in our nail clinics and restaurants. Who are those at risk? Who are those without enough work or without enough English? How can we equip them with the tools so they can stand and to steer clear? of those traps. Let's be honest, it won't be easy, and yet it's a response Jesus calls us to. A costly response that should flow from knowing that we've been forgiven a great debt, just like that sinful woman and the perfume. A response that flows from the love and the joy and the gratitude that we have from knowing we are loved and that we want others to know that too. But where do you start? It's almost paralysing, isn't it, as we think about the size of the problem? Maybe our approach should be like that of Jesus. How did Jesus do it? Well, he, he had a strategy and he was headed somewhere, but he always loved one person at a time. He wanted to go somewhere and he had a priority, but if there was a person in front of him, he loved them and he helped them. So pray that you might see the one person in front of you. Then pray that you would have the love of Jesus and the wisdom of Jesus to be able to help, to help that one person for his honour and glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are big issues and we feel ill-equipped to cope. But we rejoice in Jesus, in the perfection of his character, his wisdom, his love, his power, his forgiveness. And we pray that we might know it, know these things and be able to reflect them. We pray for the power to see those around us, to love them, and help us to love them the way Jesus did. And we pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen.